Hi there. Welcome to another Dishcast. I keep coming. Uh, this time, it's when someone I've, whose writing I've really admired for a very long time, someone who also, to my mind, has been incredibly brave in, in talking about the world in ways that others won't. Uh, his name is Michael Brendan Doherty. Um, he's a a visiting fellow in the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Division of the, a of the American Enterprise Institute, AEI, where he studies the Republican tradition in American political thought. He's also a senior writer at National Review, and he's the author of this rather beautiful memoir called My Father Left Me Ireland, An American Son's Search for Home, which I thoroughly recommend. It's, it's, a, it's a relatively short read, actually, but it's a beautiful read, and it's it's aching, aching in its sense of loss of the world, uh, of, of something important that the contemporary society appears to have forgotten. He's written for The Week, Business Insider, The American Conservative. He's been in Atlantic, ESPN, New York Times Magazine, Politico. Um, and he went to Fordham and Bard, where he studied <laughs> the very important subject of medieval history. And... <laughs> Philosophy. I don't judge. I mean, I, 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 if only um, more people had studied medieval history, I think we'd all be a, a lot better. We'd certainly understand where we are right now a little better in terms That's of right. uh, the ferocity of religious war and religious conflict. But anyway, Michael, I just want to say uh, what a pleasure it is to have you here and, 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 and welcome. Andrew, I'm so honored to be here. It's, it's, it, I can't be anything but grateful for that kind of an introduction. Wow. Well, it's true. And and so there's no need to be grateful for the truth. But I also feel there's so much flimflam thrown around about praising all sorts of God, the awful, mediocre people that every now and again, you have to tell the truth about it. Um, the one thing I get, let's start with this, from reading you as, a, as an adult, mm. uh, is an enormous sense of living in a society full of loss, loss of, of something profound, something meaningful, something real, something that our forefathers didn't quite experience in the way that we are experiencing it. Uh, and I know that sounds vague. So Michael, maybe you could uh, talk about your generation and the values that you grew up with and that seem to be so prevalent among young people in the 90s, 2000s, and how that eventually came to seem rather meaningless to you. Yeah, well, I mean, I I was born in the early 80s, and my first political memory was the fall of the Berlin Wall. I remember mm. sitting on the floor of, of our home. I was about seven years old, and my grandfather uh, was... I think on the couch, uh, holding forth, he would die soon after that. Um, my grandmother, my mother, uh, and they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And the kind of post cold war world was sort of the world as I knew it. And it seemed at first, I mean, I was, uh, you know, raised with, MTV on, on the television as like a normal thing from five or six years old. My mother was watching MTV or, um, you know, my mother, uh, 
in my childhood worked for IBM. So we got the internet really early in the 1990s. And I was on the message boards, like talking about Calvin and Hobbes, the, the comic strip, uh, not the philosophers. Where, where were yet. you living at the time? Where, where did you uh, grow up? Uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey. Okay. Um, and so I had um, a single mother and she lived with her parents uh, when she had me. And um, as as the, the, the memoir recounts, my uh, my father and mother had a, a kind of summer love affair uh, in which I was conceived. Uh, they met in London, I think, and um, kind of had a, an affair over three different countries, uh, England, Ireland and the United States. Uh, and then my mother was pregnant and my father went back to his life in Ireland and uh, married uh, who, who was then his ex-girlfriend. And now he has, you know, he, he raised a family of three beautiful children just outside of Dublin. Um, and he would visit me once every, you know, three years or so, you know, maybe for a week or two, um, at great expense to him. Uh, and he was kind of a working class guy at the time. And uh, so I just remember being raised by television and, and into this sense in the 1990s that there was just this endless opportunity stretching out before us to do whatever we wanted, to define ourselves however we wanted. Um, and I remember, you know, I'm nostalgic for it in some ways because I remember that th this thriving energy. Um, you know, my mother was very... Um, you know, very permissive in her way of, mm -hmm. you know, letting me be whoever I wanted to be. Uh, I mean, it sounds crazy, like crazy early, but <laughs> like, you know, I remember her, you know, even asking like questions about my own sexuality at like when I was 12 or something like that, which seems like a weird thing to admit. Uh, but, but she was, you know, that, at, that, at that point it was the beginning when parents might be psyched if their kid were gay. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 well, probably it, the first time in ever in, 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 in human history. <laughs> yeah. It was just bizarre. Um, and, uh, I also, uh, but I also remember that time as a time of kind of, you know, disillusion, uh, at least for my mother. Um, you know, uh, as my, as her parents died, um, my mother was left like more alone. And I remember also there was this, this creeping dark side to things where, you know, she had been assured, I think by the culture that, you know, things were changing and the attitude towards single mothers and their children had changed definitively. And that was a false promise in a lot of ways. Um, you know, she found it hard to, um, you know, settle down with a man again. I mean, she found men who gave her attention, uh, but very briefly and they were gone again. Uh, and you know, this was the time of like pharmaceuticals coming in for depression and, and all these other things. Um, and you know, I saw her life kind of crumbling apart in the late nineties um from loneliness from loneliness. isolation loneliness and, isolation. Pre and yeah. presumably having a child whose father wasn't around or wasn't there right and and who himself was going to leave right like the 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 empty nest syndrome was coming 
and um and there were just the two of you just you and your mom yeah yeah um that was the the house i left for college when i went to bard college uh and it was hard to leave and um and that's why i didn't go far actually my mother wanted me to go to england or something like that for college you know she had actually had always nursed a vain wish to emigrate to london um where she'd kind of had her glory years in the 70s um how and, hard, when it, when you say it was hard to leave even though she was telling you to yeah there was a sense that if you were the, you would you really would make the nest completely empty and and what would be left for her right and um yeah so it it was a real um struggle to watch her um slowly get sick and and she kind of got sick from these these um kind of mysterious diseases that sort of afflict the lonely um and middle aged like fibromyalgia or rheumatoid arthritis which you know when when you look at them they're just diagnosis for like you're in a lot of pain and you're mm -hmm. probably depressed. Um, and so, um, anyway, there, so there was this, um, you know, I think the, the line I, I had in my book was like, you know, I was, um, born into the end of history and we were marooned there and, you know, in some ways, like this was almost like a complete, um, chemical reaction where uh the atoms are smashed apart uh into into nothing and um but i you know i still had this very dim sense from my early childhood of um you know in my early childhood my mother had had this mania for all things irish um she was irish american by background uh her side of the family emigrated at the end of the american civil war um, and of course my father was Irish and we went to all these cultural festivities. We went to all these strange bars in Queens where all these, you know, poor Irish emigrants in the 1980s were like washing up and crying <laughs> about, uh, missing home. Um, and some of them talking some pretty radical politics at the time. Um, you know, and I, I found later in life, I found all these letters my mother wrote to my father in which my mother's cursing Maggie Thatcher and, and, uh, you know, this wishing was during, that the, the hunger strike, Bobby Sands and the hunger yeah. strike and the troubles in the eighties and, and Thatcher's yeah. refusal to actually just let him starve to death basically was, was her position. Right. And you know, that we, you know, I found her complaining in a pretty sophisticated way, like, Oh, not enough was gotten from the hunger strikes. Like, you know, this was a failure. <laughs> So where and, do you find what what where where does that come from? It, it's it's fascinating. You people people are in America, this place of sort of complete reinvention and possibilities, which is certainly how I experienced it coming here. And yet they want to reconnect with something much deeper, uh, a loyalty or a, some sort of primordial identity that gives their lives more structure and meaning. And 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 that's how you interpreted your mother's sort of attempt to to go back to her Irish uh, roots. Yeah. And, and, and listen, a little bit of it too was, I mean, she would have been at that time more radical in her Irish nationalist politics than my father living outside of Dublin. And partly because, you know, he would be paying the price for those politics, right? I mean, right. bombs, bombs even going off in Dublin, um, 
the kind of economic isolation Ireland experienced in part because it had this reputation for mayhem uh, and trouble. And, um, you know, I, I think it was, I think Orwell said it was like very easy to be nationalistic about another nation than your own. Right? Yes. It's, it's easier that to romanticize. Easier. It reminds me a little bit of American Jews' romanticization of Israel and, and, and almost sort of more passionate about it than even people who live there. Yeah. And, you know, the same is true of me, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. I've inherited that. Um, and yeah, so I, I did have this sense of this, um, I don't know, this lost world. I mean, I also had this, this, these dim memories of traveling to Ireland as a young boy and seeing my father. And, um, I had this very, um, very present horizon that there was this alternative life I could have been living hmm. somewhere else. Hmm. Um, and that it would be very different from the one I was living in New well, Jersey. It, presumably it would also be a life with a father. I mean, it's impossible to disentangle yeah. Ireland and your Irish father um, in this imagination. And, and, and the book kind of really beautifully brings that together. Um, uh, but you too saw in, in, a, in an affirmation of the most rootedness of, of, of identities a kind of a way of alleviating the pressures of what we might call liquid modernity. Am I putting that correctly? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and this, um, so I think one of the things I've tried to write about is in, in the liquid modernity, it, it kind of imposes this uh, duty of self-creation on every single person, right? Like, so you can mm -hmm. be whatever you want, um, it actually imposes the kind of, um, uh, finality of choosing, uh, and a kind of anxiety about whether you chose rightly. Um, and, you know, I think ultimately also it, it, it kind of throws people into an existential abyss really, which is that they, uh, and this, this might, this phrase might jump out at listeners, uh, maybe I haven't earned it the way I would in prose, but it, um, you become a subject known to yourself subjectively, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that experience is can be deranging uh, to some degree because un ultimately un un unpack that a little bit. Uh, unpack it by the by your by, by explain what you mean by that phrase to begin so with. So a subject that knows itself subjectively, right? So you have this duty to know yourself and to create yourself and why ultimately maybe to please yourself or to pursue happiness, but it has no reference beyond the self. And so uh, if, if something about you is displeasing to you, and I think most of us find aspects of ourselves displeasing, um, and persistently so, uh, you have no reference for, um, for, for mercy, for one, right? You become this kind of pitiless judge of yourself. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then two, um, you, you, you don't have anyone else who has the authority to say, well done with your life. 
right? The, because it has to ultimately resound in your heart in your heart alone. And I, 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 I particularly find that perspective um, intolerable, intolerably burdensome. Uh, and, and my own, you know, my own solution to that, of course, is uh, found in Catholic faith. And, and I don't say that to be particularly pious, right? Like there used to be this phrase practicing Catholic, which I really liked because it gives me the freedom to say I'm not very good at it yet. <laughs> Um, I but... like, it's like the phrase practicing homosexual. Uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I said, it's like, I'm pretty, I actually, I, you know, I'm pretty good at it by now, but nonetheless, I can still fail. Um, so are most Catholic priests. <laughs> well, this, well, this is true. Yes. Um, it's almost superfluous to say, uh, um, <laughs> but, so, but so the faith, but did you grow up with that faith? Um, in a, in my childhood, I went to a Catholic school in, in my childhood and I, I went to mass on Sundays with my grandmother. Uh, my mother didn't go as often, but I, you know, I made my, my young sacraments and, um, you know, it, it had a juvenile prayer life, but by the time I was a teenager, I was a total atheist and I thought all oh, this was stupid. Um, and I actually would have ridiculed it as like daddy issues. Um, I don't know how much the ridicule of a of a twelve or a fourteen year old is worth uh, in the scheme of things, but that was my experience. Um, so you kind of mocked it as a kind of yeah, uh, absolutely attempt to find fake meaning just because uh, you lacked a daddy or something, right? Yeah, absolutely. That it was kind of um, you know, as the kids say today, it was a cope. You know, it was like right. Um, you know, you had to grow up and face the awful truth uh, of the world, the awful finitude of existence, um, and get on with your life. And that life was material. And you know, I and and frankly, about like getting pleasure from life too. Um, you know, so that that was where I came from it as a as a teenager. Um, as a young, and teenager. when did that begin to wear off? Like, wh well, what was the? Well, I had, <laughs> in trying to get pleasure, I had a, a a beautiful evangelical girlfriend at one point in high mm -hmm. school, and in hanging around with her, you know, she started pushing me towards these like youth groups she was in, and and frankly, I met really impressive men in those groups who could speak seriously about theology, philosophy, history, and who could really challenge me, uh, in the way, you know, a mentoring relationship should be. Mm -hmm. And, um, and from then I had, you know, as some teenagers do, I had, you know, kind of these intense religious experiences. Um, you know, um, when you feel yourself to be like a swaggering atheist for, a few years and then all of a sudden you put yourself onto your knees and pray uh and feel a kind of like humiliation wash over you and then lightness and like airiness of being you know it it was transformative um and from then on i knew i believed almost like helplessly believed in mm. god uh, even if I wouldn't want to, right? Like, even if I'd love to get away from him, uh, <laughs> like I couldn't 
stop believing. Yeah, um, I know the feeling. But but tell me, I mean, if you don't mind, I mean, give give me an example of that. I, I mean, I've had I had several in my teen years and early adulthood. Uh, haven't in 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 recent years, to be honest. Um, but that sense of as a teenager in the modern world, say, um, of walking into a dark and unfashionable place, right, kneeling down and acknowledging your utter frailty and the ability to turn your life over in a way to something greater than yourself and something that's been evolving for thousands of years with a language and a, uh, a liturgy and a tradition that that is so much greater and bigger than you um a very countercultural thing to do <laughs> at that point in time in your life and in the world but also quite a radicalizing one i imagine well if, and it felt that way i remember it felt like a kind of teenage rebellion right mm-hmm. like um you know that my mother and and my father through his letters they were you know they were practical people uh in a way they didn't have a lot of time for religion um mm-hmm. you know maybe there were some sentiments and and sentimentality about it uh, maybe even some wishing that they could believe uh and then i was this like you know in my heart i was turning into this zealous teenager um and yeah, it felt good. It, and it was also an intellectual awakening, right? Right. Because, you know, I, I sense suddenly uh, had this deep uh, impulse in my heart to read and to understand uh, and to become fluent in this. And then also to, um, and to be able to stand up for myself. Uh, right. Because obviously at that point, being in any way religious, as a teen, um, puts you very much in the minority and very much on the defensive, and so you kind of, you kind of arm them up. <laughs> you, right. I mean, that's no, that's what, a, yeah. That's exactly what I did. I mean, I, 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 I could, I could give you the the arguments about transubstantiation at the age of eleven that, that would knock you dead. I mean, <laughs> I had, <laughs> I, had, I had mastered it. Um, I, I had sort of learned all the rhetorical and logical arguments in defense of Catholicism, which, which, you know, again, also in England, um, that was not yeah. exactly, uh, a popular position to hold when you were 15 or 16. Um, right. I, I mean, I remember but nonetheless, reading, it, it gave me ah. something. It gave, it, it definitely rooted me somewhere in a way that I came back to at, at, at every moment when my world was completely overturned. Right. And, 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 you know, and I remember, you know, it's almost like silly, but, uh, you know, I remember reading um, C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, on a beach, you know, like on a beach vacation, um, and trying to wrestle with, like, what is the challenge of a materialist worldview? And I don't know, just getting, uh, so th- that that sense of not just religious awakening, but intellectual awakening was, was really heady time um, for and me. It is, it is exhilarating when you've been brought up in a world of shallowness to be suddenly given depth. And, and, and it's also kind of ex- extraordinarily exciting to realize that 
this tradition has actually thought about all these things before and has really quite sophisticated arguments about all of them. And believe it or not, slightly makes more sense than other ways of understanding the world as you experience it. Right. And, and it's also this portal into history, um, you know, just like an odd example. Like, you know, I started reading uh, the English Catholic Hilaire Belloc and his um, his histories, which could be both like bombastic, uh, but also really penetrating. Um, uh, but, and then also alternatively, sometimes appalling, right. Um, you know, like his, his attitude on the Jews, but I was able to, I felt like I could safely enter into these minds and, um, I don't know, wrestle with the, the big questions and, uh, also engage human sympathies in a, in a much deeper way than a lot of my, you know, contemporaries were, um, was and, Chesterton a, another figure that you? Uh... So yeah, I mean, I, I mean, literally, uh, my mother in my senior year of high school, my mother flew me to Oxford and Cambridge to, uh, you know, like that was her dream for me, I think. Um, and I remember going to Blackford's bookshop or Blackwell's Blackwell's, uh, yes, Blackwell's. Which, it's an amazing place. Yeah. I remember my first walk into there too. I just felt, oh my God, I'm suddenly in a new world of learning. And it was it was simply bewildering how many beautiful and and erudite books they were. And also the OUP books, which is so elegant and, and oh, yeah. gorgeously done. And sorry, I, I didn't I mean remember, to rhapsodize I, I, about no, but I, I I literally went there um because like uh, C.S. Lewis went there um, into that shop, and I decided, oh, let me pick up *The Everlasting Man* by Chesterton at this bookshop, um, you know, and let me see the the Eagle and Child, right, the Bird and Baby pub uh, that Chesterton uh, that uh, C.S. Lewis went to with the his literary set, and then I went back to my godmother's flat in Putney and you know, laid in a bunk bed for her, for her children and started reading Chesterton and said, Oh, I'm, I'm back to being a Roman Catholic. I'm, I'm back to the faith of my baptism now. Um, I'm not just some mere Christian. Uh, I'm a Catholic again. And, um, so what were the, if you can remember or analyze, what were the parts of Chesterton say that reminded you that you actually were a Catholic as opposed to just a, um, a mere Christian, as he put it in the C.S. Lewis uh, formulation. Um, I think it was a couple of things. One, C.S. Lewis had kind of presented an argument for purgatory that offended, you know, the evangelical Calvinist formation that, that, you know, was available to me as a teenager. Um, and then Chesterton's just kind of sweeping account of history and of what he called, I think, the five deaths of the faith. Um, and he talked about these times in history when it seemed like the Catholic faith ought to fade away entirely and be replaced. And then suddenly it comes alive again underneath this challenge. And that, you know, the, the suddenly, um, 
the people's sons are on fire for the faith that was supposedly dying in that age, whether it's in the late Middle Ages as in the twilight of the chivalric age or whether it's in the Protestant you know, revolution, um, suddenly there's this springing back to life of, of this faith. And I don't know, his account made sense to me and made me feel more connected to, um, the church as this historical being, Mm -hmm. uh, and to the early church fathers, whereas Protestantism, as it was offered to me, was um this more abstracted uh set of doctrines directly from scripture mm-hmm. um and i love i still love calvinists and like love reading them uh because they're so intellectually stimulating and they're on fire for their faith um but you know, the attempts to ground Calvinism into the church before, you know, before the Reformation, before, you know, a Swiss lawyer got a hold of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, I just didn't find convincing at all. Right. Like I, (laughs) right. And if, yes. And if, if the the other, the other thing that happens is that you are, you are suddenly connected to 2000 years of your, your timeline your perspective on the current moment is infinitely broader than most of your peers. I mean, you, you're, you're immediately thinking in terms of civilization, two millennia, at least two millennia old. And of course, the tradition also echoes back to the Jewish tradition before that. So you're, you know, in, in a sense, in a world like the 90s, for example, I mean, everything, everything was, it was a cult of what I would call contemporaneity. Which right. is that everything new is great. I'll tell you the story about, uh, with no offense to to the person I'm speaking, but Tina Brown, at the time, uh, was editor of the New Yorker, and she called me one day and said, would you, "Andrew, would you please you've got to write this essay? You've got to write this essay." And I said, "Well, what essay?" She said, "Well, she said, uh, well, Dickie Avedon has um, has gone around <laughs> the world and he's taken these beautiful pictures, beautiful photographs of all these great religious figures." And I'd like you to write an essay connecting them all. And I was like, well, <laughs> what religious figures? And, she, and I said, well, I don't see really any great connection. We'll come up with a theme. What's hot in religion? What's hot right now? <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm afraid, Tina, that miss, that's a category error. <laughs> <laughs> that... That what's hot right now in religion is really ir- irrelevant, whatever it is. The, the, the whole point of this is to let go of what's hot and to see what's true. Well, and, 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 and that, that is, that again, the reason why that felt thrilling to be a Catholic in, in, those, in, 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 in that era of extraordinary change is that, is that it gave you somewhere to grip onto, to be able to judge and resist the contemporane- contemporaneous, to, to actually not be simply a part of your world, but to be able to see it from some kind of perspective. Yeah. And I think there's also for English speaking people, there's a kind of, I don't know, like a haughtiness and swagger to, to it all where, you know, it's like, yeah, we have Chesterton, we have Waugh, we have uh, Newman, we have the recusants, we have arguably 
the composer William Byrd, uh, who, who held on to the faith uh, even during the Reformation. Um, oh, yes. And in my case, of course, the whole tradition of English resistance, English Catholic yeah. resistance over the years. I mean, I, I come from Sussex, which is one of those counties that most resisted uh, Protestantism for a very long time. And one felt connected to that struggle, too. And um, yeah, right, and 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 you're right that it just also has this liberating effect of um, that a lot of our trends uh, con- in the contemporary world are both they are passing uh, and perennial that they're they're passing in that um, they will go away and they will will change, but perennial in that they spring from human nature, which doesn't change all that much. Um, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot during the, the pandemic, you know, like I was thinking of, you know, the sense of what can, you know, governments and cultures get this in their mind of what parts of human behavior can we control and what parts can't we control. And I, you know, I remember growing up and, you know, watching HBO's production of, and the band played on. And during the AIDS crisis, it was like a lot of people seriously argued, like we can't close down bathhouses in San Francisco. That's, that's a culture. That's a, 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 you know, a, a liberating thing. You can't, you can't possibly expect people to behave in this um, puritanical way uh, just for public health reasons. And then like, 25, 30 years later, it's like, let's, we can shut down the whole world. Uh, we can shut down religious services. We can, we can do this. We can control this. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's those, those, those impulses, right? Like the, the impulse to control and shut down or the impulse to like, let it out and ride. I mean, those, that's perennial to humanity, but the way it manifests itself in 2020, it will not be how it manifests itself in 2030 or 2040, and we'll go around in circles. But um, the human need for some kind of deeper anchor, for some kind of stability or 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 worldview that can transcend the the, the cult of the current uh, remains. Right. I mean, I mean, one of the things that I've been also puzzling about and trying to think through is this this extraordinary religious phenomenon we've seen in the last year or two, um, where a whole generation of kids brought up to believe there's no God, there's no religion, uh, is suddenly consumed with an extraordinary passion. The world is fundamentally broken because it's racist Mm -hmm. and that it has to be dismantled entirely and rebuilt and that this comes as a kind of revelation yeah and it and it and as a revelation it it has no limits in other words it has to be implemented body and soul in every institution um that in fact they've just come back and rediscovered religion uh and rediscovered this place they didn't realize they needed and wanted until it came in this uh appropriate and apparently appealing form uh but you went for the ancient one and they've gone for a completely modern one right but i mean you can see though that they are um they are inheritors of 
Christian religious impulses, mm-hmm. um, whether they, right. So most of them lacked formal formation in religion, right? Most, like most kids today don't go to catechism classes. They don't, um, attend church regularly. I mean, most people in America don't attend church regularly. This, you know, it's like one of these facts that used to say is a kind of commonplace, like, oh, America is more, more religious than other Western European nations. Well, that's kind of not as true anymore uh, and kind of not as true for the last 20 or 30 years. There's been and, a massive shift since since the, since the millennium, really, in which, which we've seen probably the sharpest drop in religious right. observance in the history of the United States. But, Maybe. You know, but fundamentally, our culture is still informed by this Christian inheritance. It's in our literature. It's in our movies. It's in our, it's in our attitudes towards the poor, in our attitudes towards the underdog. Um, and towards our ad- marginalized as well. And marginalized and towards history uh, is all a kind of, um, that history itself carries such meaning is a kind of thing that, uh, only a Christian civilization would would really dwell on. Um, you mean the the sense of eschatology, the sense that things well, are moving towards and, something and, that will be transformative for all, and that the creation. history itself matters, right? Like, so in mm-hmm. the creed, sub Pontio Pilato, right? Like mm-hmm. under Pontius Pilate, it's like right there. You're saying in the Christian creed that history matters, like this time, this place uh, in real human history. Um, it's not a revelation that completely relativizes history. And, you know, whereas I think in Islam, you know, there's much more of this sense of the eternal present now. Um, and, uh, and in any way you see this, I think I see in, in, in these movements on college campuses and now far beyond them. I mean, it, it is like a Christian movement without Christ, but it is, you know, fundamentally they are trying to put a victim, a primordial victim at the center of a redeemed society, right? Like it's, it's the victim of oppression, the victim of marginalization becomes like the cross, right? Like this scandal that you put at the center of society, you witness its suffering, you testify to that suffering and by putting it at the center of a new social order, you begin redeeming the social order. And, you know, that just feels so fundamentally Christian to me, um, you know, that, yeah. So I, would you argue, therefore, that something like uh, critical race theory, which kind of does that, is compatible with Christianity? Well, I think, I mean, it's a kind of rival. It's a kind of it's a kind of, uh, heresy, right? So instead Mm -hmm. of idolizing, uh, God incarnate, you're, you, you idolize these ephemeral, uh, victims and social and social circumstances that, um, that are constantly changing. Um, and listen, it's also, there's also this, uh, you know, it's a typically, you know, progressive, even, even there's a kind of Marxist element of, of dismantling an entire system, um, and overturning all the earthly hierarchies, right? Like that's, 
that's part of this CRT impulse as well. And um, so I don't know if it's compatible with Christianity. I, I mean, I think it, uh, although it's interesting that it doesn't, you know, for a movement that is, has this big iconoclastic element to it. And remember, iconoclasm is also part of the Protestant yeah. Christian tradition as well, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, you mean the, it, the knocking down of statues, the renaming of, of schools, the, the, uh, absolutely. The, the erasure of the past, um, and the need to have a new day. This is, well, I mean, this, to, is, this is the Reformation. Again, and, to, and to get rid of the cult of the saints, that it's false in some way, right? So like your cult of George Washington is false. Your cult of... Uh, MLK Jr. is false. Yeah. And and so we tear it down and replace it with something else. And um, yeah, so there, it is like a new clerical class, like assuming it's placed in a revolution. But it's interesting that it maybe it's because the Christian church, the formal Christian church is just too unimportant. Uh, it's not they're not going into St. Patrick's Cathedral and knocking down statues of saints. They're not burning uh churches um that preach orthodox christianity or even more unorthodox forms of christianity they're focused on history and on the american civic religion uh so anyway it's just um i don't know it's just interesting that the statues <laughs> that i run to uh for consolation or inspiration aren't the ones getting knocked down um it's all the american ones the civic ones Right, right. But that it, presupposes it, it, a confusion, does it not, of the religious and the secular world, that you're, you're projecting hmm. um, a religious meaning on what are, in effect, a sort of secular uh, civic order. Right. Um, and, and that also seems to be a bit of a category error, again. I mean, it's... it's but the way you talk it, talk about it, and, and certainly the way I've seen it, and the way recent converts speak of it, um, it's it's a very Christian impulse. What? But of course, at its very heart, it's atheist. It's it right. Is, yeah. it, it, it's profoundly atheist. It, 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 the, the 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 thinkers who are the origin of this really had no belief in the afterlife, have no belief in the individual soul, and see individual human beings as. And this is what's kind of fascinating: is mere bodies. That's uh, the yeah. phrase "black and brown bodies," which is a which is so interesting when you think of uh, well, that, the souls I mean, that's, of black folk. And it because well, because I mean, I it has was, no redemption after it. Ha the redemption has to happen on Earth, right? Well, that was right. That was in a way like uh, Coates is the one who popular. Tony Coates popularized that the bodies, yeah. and it, I think it was very deliberately. Uh, his self-consciously atheistic response to the souls of black folks yeah. and to the churchly tradition of black politics in America. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think, so, I mean, think about the, if you, if you think of the civil rights movement in some ways as, uh, as, as a, as a Christian movement, which I think you could make a good argument that it was, even though, of course, it, it had so much yeah. secular, particularly Jewish involvement um, and white involvement. But the black church was central to it. The, the speeches are so redolent of, of 
of the credible legacy of the black church in America and the culture and spirit and sense of redemption that it, it created and also the sense of solace that it gave in, right. in the presence of constant obliteration and fear and yes, oppression for so well, long. But if, if uh, I could, st- yeah. I, I'd like to steal man, the, the, the Coatesian critique, right? Okay. Uh, so I, I think if, uh, you know, by focusing on the bodies of black folks, you know, you are saying that um, I think for him, it increases the imperative for justice in this world, right? That's always been the kind of atheist progressive critique of Christianity is that by postponing the final justice into the hereafter, you're kind of letting your society off the hook. Yeah. Um, and, and that, um, you know, and in in a way, maybe that they feel when they when they talk with Christians or that tradition of the souls, um, that you're in some way diminishing the the death and physical destruction that racism or uh, ethnic chauvinism or war can inflict, um, and and um, I don't know, I. I I take that on board. Um, my only defense would just be that um, we will be perpetually disappointed because human nature is so stubborn and that these um, we're likely to very much uh, eliminate one prejudice and replace it with another. Um, well, what it and, 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 and I don't, I don't mean to li- li- leave us off the hook. I'm just saying that, um, you know, we, society is not perfectible because individuals are not perfectable. Like we will, we will, I mean, mean it's a horrible thing, but we will never achieve an American society where all individuals and groups agree that the, the riches and spoils of our culture are shared justly and equitably, right? Like that, that will never happen. Uh, Christianity would say that, that essentially what the inside of Christianity is the total brokenness of the world, which means that it can be bettered, it can be redeemed, uh, it can be, you can attempt to heal it, but the notion that you will make it anew, that you will banish injustice, that you will, that is, is itself a, a fallacy and in, any, in many ways uh, uh, a siren call that will actually prevent you from doing the tangible good you can do right rather than the completely intangible revolution you cannot create well yeah. um, in other words this is a classic liberal versus left argument and christianity is essentially i think has to lead to a, an incremental um human and broken sense of progress as opposed to a, a perfect and and continuing uh a trajectory of liberation right yeah i mean um yeah, my joke is like when someone says like the arc of history bends towards justice, I always get the feeling that they want to impale me on it, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the uh, but yeah, right. I mean, Christ, you know, Christ saying, "Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's." Right? I mean, that parable comes up, or not parable, but he's asked about the coinage which bears Caesar's image, and he says, "Okay." 
you can just give the money to Caesar in tax. This is Caesar's. It has his image on it. But the emphasis is really on the second part, which is render unto God what is God's. Well, what has God's image on it? Well, every human soul, right? So it it, it there is a sense in which the Christian tradition relativizes politics. Um, yes, and and, and, it, and how that essentially was was also a, an aspect of Christianity which was lost in the pursuit of power. Um, uh, and when Christians held enormous political power and wielded it, and then wielded it in a sectarian fashion um, throughout the the, the 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 16th, 17th centuries, which then create, which then produces a kind of secular liberalism, which is rooted again in these older Christian un- understandings of the equal dignity of human beings and the imperfectibility of of humankind. Right, and, and you see it. I mean, you see it on a micro level. You know, I think the. I, I mean, I feel that you and I, Andrew, are, because of the Catholicism, we're foreign to American evangelical Christianity and its its division of a white church and black church, which which to me makes no sense at all. Um, no, but um, right. I mean, like my Catholic church, you know, it's it's more white just by virtue of the the surrounding population in Connecticut being a little bit more white, but otherwise it's a United colors of Benetton ad. I mean, with Indian festivals, with African-Americans, with, uh, Filipinos. It's, it's small C Catholic. I mean, I always loved it about that. It was rich and poor and old and young and all sorts of races and all sorts. And we were all there lining up for communion, completely broken souls of a million different varieties. And that's what I found and find about Catholicism. Um, so, Wonderful, and also that we are not enjoined for all us instantly to have some kind of uh, spiritual uh, uh, moment of catharsis or whatever in right. the service. We are simply going to consume the body and blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord. Well, and, and that is that is a very it doesn't it doesn't depend on you. It, the right. miracle happens independently of you, and you witness and partake in it as a as a witness. But that is not your uh, moment and a human moment of transcendence. It is it, it is an acceptance of a reality of God in the Eucharist. Well, that's why you know this gets back to what I said earlier about modernity putting you in this position of a subject, knowing yourself subjectively. I mean, ultimately the traditional liturgy of the church is a kind of solution to this riddle because Mm -hmm. it is the the liturgy's action is the the action of god upon you the subject right so the there's an objective actor uh outside of you and and my you know my constant consolation right is that you know i may be in the church i may be in the vestibule struggling with a a wriggling toddler who can't sit still for mass because he's you know just bounding out with boy energy i may be thinking about you know i might be thinking about um my jealousy of like some chris caldwell wrote something that i wish i had written or well that happens uh, to all of us someone you know (laughs) someone achieved something i wish i did or i wished i had you know why couldn't i get the lawn mown this week or something and then the bell rings and my knee hits the floor and that objectivity is where i can be 
existentially grounded again. Uh, so it's not even devout, but it is real. Uh, there's a, there's a, there's, I think there's a phrase of Pascal in the Pensee where he, he sort of, I think he says that it, it sort of turns men into beasts again, that, that, that you subject yourself, um, you obey. And, and the physical act of kneeling or standing or moving uh, right. is, is not, it, it, it's something you compel your body to do, but it, it doesn't seem to involve this sort of choice in a, in a way that, uh, it, uh, the, 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 the modern world kind of demands of us. And in some way it testifies that action of kneeling at the bell at communion when uh, the bell is rung, that testifies to my faith and the reality of what is happening in the liturgy regardless of where my mental state is at. Right. And that, right. that's actually kind of the freedom of Catholicism, right. Is, is yeah. exactly that lack of cath that you don't need to work yourself up into a religious paroxysm at every worship service. Absolutely not. I remember, um, I remember one of the insights I had when I went to Italy and, and uh, watching the Italians go to mass on a Sunday right. <laughs> and outside the church on their best business, young men and women are, are sort of flirting and a couple of kids. There's all sorts of shit. And then, and it's kind of chaotic and they're outside. And then suddenly the bell, and they all suddenly come into the church for the consecration. And then right. they not mill about, then they're out again and they have community or the, what we used to call the quick and dirty, which is um, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, Irish yeah. quick and dirty mass where they, they have these sort of mass factories. You go in there, it's done with 20 minutes. I remember one of the priests from my childhood, Father Charlton used to, used to run through it like it was over in 20 minutes and uh we were kind of grateful for that in a way uh and of course this is subject to enormous mockery from people from the outside for understandable um uh, that we're, 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 we're and this is also directed at pascal of course that you're completely abandoning your intellect and your mind you're, you're and we're like no 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 we just understand better that we are not all mind correct <laughs> that yes we, that we are more than that and that this Ritual will help us understand that and and put us where we belong. Um, and, and 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 listen, and it will happen. I mean, my experience has been, you know, that for years I'll feel like a kind of dryness. You know, in my spirituality, I'll feel like a total fraud or a fake. I'll feel, um, you know, uh, distant from God in some way. And then I'll just be there at mass, and suddenly I hear. You know, usually in in the in the traditional mass, at some point in the summer, the reading comes where uh, there's the miraculous catch of fish, and mm -hmm. Peter comes back and falls to his knees. He falls to his knees and says, "Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man." And then that thing will hit me where I am. It will burn itself into my heart and soul. And I will be transformed by it in some way. And suddenly I'm, I'm, you know, making those small improvements into my life as a, a father or husband or um, dealing with some, you know, unconfessed sin or something like that, that, the, that, you know, suddenly that, that moment that maybe a lot of Protestant services are looking to hit you with every time reliably by just engaging your emotions, it'll just, it'll just come. It'll well uh, up. It'll, yeah, exactly. And like, and like a volcano, right? Like it's, it was dormant for years and then, um, suddenly it's there again, active. But that's and, also true of, of, of prayer and meditation. Um, again, I, I just remember listening to my Irish grandmother 
rattle off the rosary. Uh, and <laughs> yeah. it was so easy to be a little embarrassed by her because um, she'd be there at the end of the pew and, and she had a very broad Irish accent. Um, she, she, was from, <laughs> she was the seventh of 13 kids from Tralee. And um, I was a precocious young English boy trying to, trying to fit in. But, but as any student of, of even Eastern religions will understand, this is, this is, to condescend to that is, is, is another category error. Uh, you're missing what she's doing. And it's, it's, it's getting to a place that is not quite any more thought or choice. It is, it is communion uh, with right. something greater than oneself. But what, what strikes me about this liquid modernity is that as you and I will testify in some ways, although this is just our own experiences, that it does not satisfy us. That liberal democracy, in fact, is designed not to satisfy our deepest lives. Right. It, is, it is a historical compromise because of our sharp uh, epistemological, ontological, philosophical, religious, profound differences that we cannot resolve and that are irresolvable. And so we come to this liberal compromise that itself will not sustain meaning. And so we seek the meaning in other places. And that's what liberalism really, the, the gamble is, is that, that, is that we will prevent politics from becoming violent and destructive. Uh, the consequence of this, will, we won't all have a sense, a sense of profound common meaning or common good in a way but that we can achieve that in pluralistic ways, whether it be through art or, or even science or literature or, or work or religion um, for those who are engaged in that matter. But that, again, in the end, does not feel enough for people, especially those that don't have uh, those other forms of transcendent experience. And, and, and so it, it strikes me in some ways the modern world is absolutely primed for Christianity to tell its truth. <laughs> and right. Yet, and yet it's utterly failing, and it allows a kind of pseudo-Christianity, as, as you point out, this, this new woke revolution, this awakening, this awakening, to take place in its stead. Why, why is that? Why have we Christians been unable to, uh, to meet this moment? I don't, I mean, I don't know, right? I mean, it's like, you know, I wonder how, you know, a non-believer listening to us would, would, would relate, right? I mean, because we talked about finding this thing as young men, and it was like this live wire uh, that transformed you and everything in the world. Uh, and yet the, the church is dead and continues to die, right? Like it just, um, it can't, it seems to not inspire us or not inspire people in this broad mass sense. I, and, and sometimes I wonder, did it ever, right? Like <laughs> when you look back, like, you know, how many people knew about St. Francis? How many people were wallowing around at their local parish and thinking like, this is a total mediocrity and St. Francis is 10 miles away from them, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> And, uh, you know, am I missing, I've often wondered, am I missing that there are saints uh, and wonders and miracles of, of love and mercy kind of happening around me and I'm just uh, unaware of them and that they'll only be disclosed 
in history. Well, right? like, Francis, like, of course, uh, was, a, was a phenomenon in his time, though. I yeah, mean, he, he, he actually was. Is the, the reputation had spread throughout Europe very, very quickly. He was he was he was a, he was a, he was a celebrity um, no, pretty true. quickly. And, and, and it was something he he had a huge issue with, actually. Uh uh, or we have someone like Mother Teresa, or we have figures that that to sort of we don't ever see, of course, that that are well, that well, are performing Teresa, miracles on a daily basis. That that inevitably are not going to be in the news, but they are the teacher that that rescues a child. You know, the 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 person who says something, just something that humanizes a homeless person. Um, right. Uh, but the Christian tradition will always be about the salvific nature of the independent, interpersonal connection between soul and soul. And, right. and of course, wokeness can't do that. It, it, it can't. It doesn't have within its uh, epistemology any sense of the soul uh, or indeed of the intense value of the individual uh, connection um, because we are just simply in some ways, avatars of our race or our sex or, or whatever other category that, 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 that the postmodernists decided was a form of oppression. And, and so that becomes impossible. What, um, what do you fear about CRT? Right. I, I, I'm curious, I, I, like I, I oppose it. I, you know, I'm kind of looking baffling. I, I, I kind of, I get these statements from the local school district where, where my daughter goes to first grade and, you know, they put out a, an anti-racism statement at the beginning of the year that was um, robust about its commitment to an anti-racist pedagogy, which it didn't explain what that would actually look like. Um, and then this week I got another statement from the district saying, we are not teaching critical race theory. And it was like, they were trying to head it off right? This, this growing rebellion that's happening at school board meetings all over. And even where I live in New York. Uh, and then at the same time, they said like, we're still like looking for a consultant on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Right. So it's like, we're still, we're still looking to hire a six figure person, uh, to be this kind of clerical presence in the district. Like, it's just amazing to me because like, I look at it and I think, you know, like, could you imagine the uproar if somehow I arranged for a Catholic priest to teach my unprovable metaphysics as urgent justice in a public school? Uh, and yet, you know, uh, we're going to get some kind of uh, half consultant, half shaman in the <laughs> to, right. to do the same for for uh, diversity, but equity, and inclusion. But unlike unlike the Catholic tradition, there is no mercy in this tradition. There is no forgiveness and no, there is no it's... ultimate salvation. It is simply about power and it disempowering some people at the expense of others based upon their racial characteristics. Here is what I fear. What I fear is that people will understand themselves not as individuals capable of figuring out the world through reason as, as we've come to understand the very sort of, in other words, the very building block of a liberal society, which is the individual with a mind who can reason and deliberate with his fellow citizens about what is to come and what we should do about the common good. That's a very basic understanding of a liberal system. And this targets that directly and says that individual cannot be trusted if that person is not of a particular identity and that therefore 
the notion of an, a, an interchangeable individual citizen has been removed from the equation altogether in favor of an understanding of groups and of their historical oppression. In other words, what you do is you simply take out from underneath the entire structure of constitutional liberal democracy, its epistemological foundations, in the hope that it will collapse. Um, in the conviction that it will collapse, and in the conviction that that understanding of the free individual mind and the mind's ability to think clearly and to reason and to deliberate, and imperfectly, but through that process of deliberation, come into sort of a truth, this short circuits all of that. So the truth is already here. It's about power and nothing else. And if you are a white kid, you are implicit and, uh, and complicit in the oppression of your, your fellow uh, human beings and citizens who are of a different race. Now that is that that target that immediately says that immediately tells you this. It is much more important to reverse that oppression than it is to understand anything or to deliberate anything. And if deliberating something means that that might offend that person, then you are merely perpetuating the harm. In other words, it cuts off the potential for liberal learning and understanding entirely, and does so consciously because it wants to rid our society of the notion of an individual with a soul and a mind who can think and figure things out for him or herself. And that has validity. That's my fear. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but you know, when you describe it that way, I mean, it sounds like such a hothouse flower, like in, in, in Marvel, it's, I marvel that it survives as long as it does and it continues going on. I mean, I suppose. Well, it, it survives because in fact, that is so much more compatible with our human nature than liberalism. It's so right. much more attractive to us because it appeals to our desire to think of other people not as individuals, but as members of groups that we either like or dislike. That is so much more integral to human nature than the notion of an individual mind itself, which again is rooted in the notion of individual soul, which comes down to Christianity. So in other words, uh, <clears throat> it, it's, it's, it's a it's the most destructive ideology so, you know, that that's Western liberalism has confronted since communism, definitely. So the, it's interesting because the you know the way you cast it as um this was um the way you know Jonah Goldberg wrote about this in his book The Death of the, the West or Suicide of the West, uh, which I think you know um I think it, it did, wasn't taken as seriously, but he, he, it should have been taken seriously because he makes this exact argument that, um, tribalism, populism, uh, are allied to human nature in a way that liberalism, which he casts as this, this kind of chemical accident, um, you know, a cultural chemical accident of like mixed Christianity in with disestablishmentarianism with, you know, a couple of technological shifts and you get this entire explosively creative, powerful culture of freedom. I don't know. I, I find, I think I come at it a little differently, which is that I, I don't discount our need for groups. What I resist about CRT is this kind of asphyxiating political prescriptionism that is attached to group, to group identity. Um, like I, I think there is a need. Um, I, I think nations, like so, for instance, I think nationalism can be legitimate because national membership in a nation can be 
legitimate and can impose real duties on someone, right? Like, I don't think you could, if you, if that weren't true, you couldn't justly draft a young man to serve in the armed forces in a war. Um, so I, I believe that there is some political element to our membership in groups, but I find somehow CRT um, has this miserablest aspect to it where you are all victim or all oppressor um, that I find uh, just simply untrue. Well, um, it, it, it makes the fundamental leap from the notion that good and evil are in all of us equally. Right to if you are a particular group you are full of virtue and if you are not you are full of vice and or at least potential for vice in other words it it does racialize human beings in a way that is incredibly appealing to most of us um and and incredibly beguiling because once you're told once you go to harvard you go to one of these institutions you're told the first thing you're told is beware you can't talk to people without acknowledging first of all whether they're uh, male, female, black, white, Latino, whatever, straight, gay, cis, whatever. Uh, and that's before you speak. And before you speak, <laughs> you then have to understand that you cannot speak in certain contexts and you cannot counteract certain arguments that they might proffer because you are not, you don't have the standing because you're not one of those people. In other words, it also completely dissolves the possibility of a common reason. Uh, in favor of reorganization of racial power groups. And, and, and so that is why the fact that it has taken hold of our liberal institutions, especially our universities, that's why it is absolutely inimicable to a notion of a tolerant liberal society. I think it's, it's true that it's like people who say, oh, it's not important because it's, it's just in all the most uh, elite institutions of our national life. That's crazy, right? Like, that, obviously, because it's there, it's worth talking about. Well, right? it, like, it so is there also in every major corporation's employment policies. It's now across the entire federal government. Equity is now, which means we prioritize. We, we will discriminate against certain people because of their race or gender, because we want to counteract past discrimination on the basis of race and gender. In other words, which is what the Abraham Kendi view is, is that the only way to justice is to have a regime that persistently and consistently discriminates against whites, males, and everyone on the top, openly and proudly. Um, and, and that we need a period of that before we can possibly have any sort of justice. So in other words, we need to reverse engineer segregation and, 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 and racial oppression uh, invert it for a while, we don't, or they know yeah. when this would end, in order to overcome it, which of course is the end of the liberal idea entirely. And and Kendi also wants to amend the constitution to render the entire constitution um, of no obstacle yeah. to an unelected body that has absolute power to coerce any individual institution or company that is not compliant uh, with 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 fines or a jail. So it, it's 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 a it's an explicitly, openly, uh, despotic philosophy, and I I can't. This is Kendi who's who's arguing this explicitly, and yet is taken at places like the Atlantic and 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 other liberal institutions as if this is 
he's not arguing for a kind of dictatorship of the proletariat, which he, he quite obviously is. Well, it, it, well, yeah, but it's not the proletariat, right? So, I no, mean, it's, that's, it's, it's kind, of, in, kind of proletariat. I mean, I'm using that as a yeah, as a no, no, no. It, but you know, it's no, you're right about the structure of it. But it's it's interesting. It seems like it serves a couple purposes, right? Like, so if you're worried that like we have overproduced elites or like fake elites, yeah, I mean, in a way, surviving the gauntlet. If you're white and you survive the gauntlet of this, that this presents to certain white students. In a way, it's like uh, when you check your privilege, you're like you. You're in effect, you can flaunt that your status that you um, you've mastered this somehow and sur- come out on the other side and survived. Um, and that, but that's, generally that's speaking, a, that has to be accompanied by a public apology, confession, and and commitment to being born again into the new correct uh, system. So it's not something you can do quietly. No, no, no. It's 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 not. Um, and, you know, democratic society, diverse democratic societies are going to have this problem of um, representation among elites, right? Like that is, mm-hmm. that is fundamentally the kind of riddle we're trying to solve. And what, so one thing, if, if people, I, I listened to the, the show you did with Chris Caldwell, whose book I really felt challenged by, um, but I think it kind of, if I could talk to him, I would say, one of the reasons the Civil Rights Act produced this uh, enduring class of civil rights activists and activism and the search for more victims and so on. I mean, one of the reasons it it, it persisted uh, and grew was, you know, he, he talks about how Americans thought this would be a one-time thing, like we're suspending... Yeah. Um, the normal rules, uh, you know, which obtain under freedom of association or all these things, one time to correct for a previous historic injustice. A unique and hideous historical unique, injustice. And, and, and hideous one. But I think what he, what I wished he dealt with, which was that I think he's right. There was this one time aspect to it. But one of the reasons it, grew was that through the 70s and 80s and 90s despite these efforts right whether it was busing affirmative action um the the kind of weird alchemy that happens in the college admissions process people were still scandalized by the actual condition of black america right like it they, they weren't seeing this rapid catch up that I think a lot of people expected. Like, okay, once we have a fair shot, there's the problems are going to be solved. Um, and that's how you get into this whole conservative uh, dialogue about like pathological cultures and um, and so on. And and so I think, and, and it's become a worse scandal as America becomes more diverse and you see the, the upward mobility of Hispanic and Asian immigrants compared to both native and uh, whites and blacks uh, who are kind of stuck in struggling regions or struggling parts of cities or, you know, or, or, or cities that are in struggling regions like the Rust Belt, Detroit, Buffalo, uh, and beyond. So I, you know, I just, I see CRT as this, this, this attempt to kind of 
let's solve this by getting even more radical. Yeah, it's, um, an, it's in some ways it is it is the function of failure, and it is right. a massive and it is a huge attempt to to argue that none of these things were sufficient. We have to have an actual revolution to do this, even though it seems proof of principle that that race is not uh, an absolutely crippling disadvantage in America, which is, seems to be clearly true from the the success, the astonishing success of of so many ethnic minorities that are now earning so much more than your average white person, for example. But, but, uh, and, but that's, it and that's why the Asian question is so sensitive, too. Uh, the question becomes, uh, we've done all these things, we, we, we amended our constitution fundamentally, we then added all sorts of programs, affirmative action, uh, the war on poverty, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet we haven't had a transformation. Uh, therefore, these previous efforts were actually disguised attempts to keep quote-unquote white supremacy alive and that therefore the entire model of liberalism needs to be junked. It's been proven it can't uh, accommodate the, the rising uh, achievements of black Americans, even though I think that's also kind of incredibly uh, crude. In fact, I do think you can say that there has been enormous progress in many African Americans in terms of, in terms of growing uh, incomes and wealth. There are some structural historical questions about wealth, which are incredibly hard to resolve, that are a function of historical injustices. But I compare it, say, with the, the feminist revolution, which is that people say, well, once we re remove the barriers to women, the formal barriers of their success, we will, they, we will find that sooner or later, they'll be equal in the society. And lo and behold, that's basically happened. Um, within 30 or 40 years, women are absolutely kicking ass everywhere. And it's been a huge success, but not with African Americans <laughs> in the same way, and that's a problem. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a very serious problem because I I do think diverse societies that exist under democratic constitutions just have this um, desperate need, right, to have representation within the elite of every group. I, I actually do think it's, it is a political imperative. Um, and it's, it's been a perennial political problem everywhere, right? Like, I mean, that's, that's why, um, you know, it's true even when it's not racial, right? It's true when those are national identities. And that's why, you know, like the United Kingdom started devolving parliaments down to the national subgroupings, right? Is, um, cause you had to give some kind of uh, there, there was this felt need to give, but that's um, different. That, that's that's not saying that the elite has to represent exactly the proportion of the demographics in the entire population, or that every single profession has to reflect the. the and if it does not, that is prima facie evidence that oppression and discrimination is occurring, and no other factors need to be considered. That's, I don't think it's, that's a bigger leap. That's a much right. bigger leap. Well, I don't think it's necessarily. I don't, I personally don't think that it's necessarily evidence of oppression not to not have a perfectly representative elite, but I do think, uh, if it's not somewhat representative, mm -hmm. um, you can get, uh, like, I think class warfare is, um, a perennial part of politics. If it's racialized, I think it becomes much more dangerous and, and, uh, to a society 
or, or if it's nationalized, right? Like, um, well, that's my concern is that as the society becomes more diverse, and it is, uh, when I say that, I mean racially or culturally diverse, then if we adopt a measure of group equalities, we are, we are about to enter an incredibly acrimonious, bitter uh, fight over the spoils for different racial entities oh, yeah. that, is, that is essentially almost always awful. And in which you can, what you see this in, for example, many uh, uh, woke organizations or, or indeed woke campaigns you've seen in New York City, in which the different minority groups that are competing, the resentments that are stoked and are always valid, then, then start to work upon each other. And the, the, the distinctions between lighter colored uh, blacks or oh darker God, colored yeah. blacks, we saw in the, in the Lin-Manuel Miranda controversy over in the Heights, for example, this can go on forever. You can see in the gay rights movement now, there's a, are the cisgender people and the transgender people and the pansexual people and the asexual people who, who should be represented <laughs> on this board and that board until you just end up in, in horribly acrimonious warfare. And in fact, the more complicated your diversity is, the more intense this hideous warfare is going to become and in which everybody's going to have a certain point because there are and many places in which these these things occur and and you will you will go mad and not only in the process of going mad you will increasingly internalize your sense as being simply a member of this group and the whole culture of individualism is so easily swamped by these tribal and deep primordial identities, which make liberal democracy impossible. And if, if, and I'm sorry to get all worked up here, but I, I, no, I, no, no, I, do. I worry about it. I mean, I worry that we're going to have parties that are defined racially. Well, uh, and it's, we it's, already do to some extent. And, and, yeah. and that, and that the politics, the politics of, of telling white Americans that they should fundamentally understand themselves as white, as opposed to maybe Irish or opposed to maybe, you know, Midwestern or as opposed to all sorts of other potential identities you can ascribe. But that is incredibly dangerous because it sets in motion right. a kind of psychology that renders compromise impossible and renders liberal society impossible. Uh, and, and what you've seen in the bitterness and brutality, the nastiness of these elite struggles uh, is, is just an echo of what will come uh, nationally, everywhere, as these different groups start to wage war upon one another for the spoils. And that is the end of liberal society. <laughs> it really well, and, is. And it, and it really is. And it's funny, it's perpetual too, right? So, because you can always reverse the demand, right? So, for years, there were demands for, um, like in arts, for colorblind casting. Like, of course, you can have a black Hamlet. Of course, you can have a, um, you know, a Latino uh, in a Shakespearean play playing Othello, if you, if you want, or, and you could change the work slightly to uh, accommodate and acknowledge that in your stage production or not. But then Juilliard has this freak out in the opposite direction, which is, you know, students rallied against colorblind casting saying, you're forcing me to hide and submerge my black racial identity behind white characters and that in itself is a kind of white supremacy and it's um you're right it, it is it's an abandonment the art of, itself has to disappear because it can't well, it can't allow it to have that freedom it has to become 
a vehicle for ideology. Um, and that's that when you read reviews, <laughs> I mean, there's so many awful reviews written by all these millennials pumping out every, every film has to be judged entirely on where there weren't enough people that identity in it, or it wasn't black enough, it wasn't white enough. That's it. That's the review. Um, or they offended someone like the fact that in the Heights, which I don't know, I haven't seen, but the fact that it's defined entirely by that squabble, as opposed to seeing it as an artistic right. whole, seems to me to be reduce it to, to ideology in a way that art should inherently uh, make more complex rather than more simple. Well, and that's, you know, that is one of the tragedies, right, of this this last 30 years is that, you know, when I, I felt when I was young that a lot of people who were progressives of a certain cast who kind of had this longing for... Uh, a utopia that can never be and who themselves maybe don't have faith in God, they could turn to the arts and to high culture for that sense of catharsis that, um, and, um, uh, the, the feeling that they, that they themselves and their longings and passions could be understood and ordered into something beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. And you're right now, every, I mean, now no one goes to catechism. And so they're trying to make the movies into catechesis lessons, which sucks, um, which, which means bad movies. <laughs> like, I know, and, and, they, and God knows how many of them there are. I mean, the, these, these asinine comic book, uh, movies oh my God. I, I, I can't even begin to, it might as well go on a, a, a fucking Disney ride. Uh, it, it's, it's, but it seems that that's what will appeal to, that's the only thing that can get through to people uh, or will translate into mass sales in China, which is, of course, where Hollywood is currently directing most of its its concern. But that brings up an interesting question, which is, you know, one thing I've always thought, like, I always try to think of a baleful social trend. Well, how would this end, right? So, like, with the trans kid stuff, which I, I don't mean to bring up another subject, you know, I thought... Okay, that's going to end in a lawsuit, right? That some, you know, 19-year-old man is going to say, "Hey, I was a kid. You could have told me I would be a unicorn and I would have believed you, and you gave me the surgery and now I'll never be a father. I've lost my sexuality. Um, you know, give me nine figures and a judgment." And then the insurance companies will tell the hospitals and the therapists, "No more, you know, no more on minors." And with CRT, I've wondered, you know, does this end with as and I don't welcome this as a as a as a dove. Does this end with conflict with China, which is an immeasurably more racist, chauvinistic society than the West and then the United States? And um, you know, which a conflict with the Chinese Communist Party for the future of the world? I think if people became conscious of it as um, as their politics, I think it would uh, suddenly the virtues of America's Republican inheritance, uh, the actual existing diversity that we not only tolerate, but encourage the expression of, I don't know, would suddenly the, the value would suddenly be there for people. Um, like well, it's, hopes it's, so, but there seems to be an absolute blind because the doctrine argues that racism entirely a Western construct was entirely created by white people <laughs> in the West, which I know you laugh because it is absolutely historically and and 
culturally and civilizationally absurd to make that argument. Uh, and when you have a country like China, which is overwhelmed, not just Chinese, but Han, in which anybody even slightly different than a Han is, is, has no chance whatsoever, let alone the ethnic minorities, which are under siege, and in one case being wiped out systematically. Uh, that is, you're right. I mean, if you think about that as the alternative to what the West is, which is this effect, effectively an incredibly successful attempt to keep such a diverse place actually on the road, actually keep going and finding a way to keep it not breaking down into racial and ethnic warfare. But that requires the defense of liberalism as the essential lubricant for diversity. Uh, that liberalism, not leftism, but liberalism, the notion that we don't obsess about race in everything, that we do see the individual as the key unit, that, that is actually the way in which real racial toleration can actually physically occur. And we have shown this to be true. In other words, what we, what we have to do is, is reverse this idea that somehow America has been a failure at this, when America has, in fact, been an incredible success. In fact, if you look at human history, it's, it's an astonishing success, given what it's trying to do. No civilization has tried to do this before. Have an entire country full of the most diverse and different races, cultures, religions, all the rest of it. It's not, there have been cities in the past that have been that cosmopolitan, but there have not really been countries and states that have to organize this way. And the fact that we've managed to do it without civil war is remarkable. But well, it does mean that there will be, well, we didn't, obviously, at one point. But that's, that's not, I'm sorry, but I mean, in, in, I'm talking about the modern, about, well, we did. So that's a useful, it's a useful recognition uh, that this thing is not natural to humans. That it, that it is destructive to most human societies and that we have actually done a pretty fucking good job at stopping it from being an absolute catastrophe. And, and in that sense, it is our strength. But it but cannot it, it, be our strength if we seek the perfect over the good. It, I, it, if there were a real rising geopolitical friction with China, that group impulse, which you fear as a, as a potential underminer of liberalism could become its ally, right? Because mm -hmm. it would naturally bring up a sense of, 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 you know, my theory of nationalism is nationalism is this, um, is like patriotism in an irritated or aroused state, right? And it, mm -hmm. it kind of wells up wherever there is this presence of an irritant, right? So you get tons of nationalism in, Kiev, because Moscow is always bothering Ukraine, right? And you get tons of nationalism in Northern Ireland because you have two communities with separate national identities. Um, but in the United States, in a in periods of prosperity and peace, nationalism just kind of fades away um, as a as a politics, and it only rises when there's something to disturb it. And wars always disturb it. And and you could see how. I mean, nationalism and liberalism have been yoked together as allies in lots of struggles, right? I mean, uh, you know, in a way, they were they were partners well, in, in in overthrowing the church. Uh, if you, if you, but it also, if you remember, the response to nine eleven and to the threat of Islamism was actually quite 
multicultural in a way. That I'm not talking about the Iraq War, which 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 moved things in a different direction, but in the aftermath of 9/11, there was a really cross-cultural, cross-racial understanding that America is a good place and we don't deserve to be massacred in this way. Now there were many people on the left in, in, in intelligentsia, of course, they didn't see it that way. But and that's <laughs> that's the other thing that, that you see here is that um is 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 a left really does not the contemporary my contemporaries I'm I'm really struck and it's been a real revelation to me over the last few years. They don't really believe in the nation state. I, I, right. I, I, they they really believe it's kind of illegitimate. Uh, well that's 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 what I think um, the the Polish thinker Rizard Legutko, who um, he's a member of the ruling party there. I think he's a minister in the European Parliament. He's an anti-communist dissident in Poland, and now he's part of this kind of populist nationalist movement there. And he he wrote this book, The Demon and Democracy, and and what it holds out is that for some partisans of liberal democracy, particularly on the left, you know, their vision of liberal democracy has a Marxist eschatology, right? That eventually under liberal democracy, um, religion, religious allegiances and national allegiances will melt away, right? That like they will just gradually be let go of as part of the past and part of a superstitious, um, previous life that were only a source of conflict. Um, and that, and yet the liberal democracy also like communism, uh, has this urge to cast people into these politicized identities. Right. So yeah, it, it, it does seem that, that at least we're observable that there's this trend of casting people into these identities and, and not, it's not just CRT, but you know, if you're not a, if you're not a feminist, you're not a real woman. Uh, if you're not, um, you know, if, uh, you know, Joe Biden, like if you didn't vote for me, if you didn't vote for Barack, you're not really black, you know, like there's this kind of, uh, Nicole Hannah Jones has talked about people who are black racially, but not politically black. Um, and yeah, I find that really threatening and stultifying, right? Like that's my, my argument in a sense for, a civic and national identity is that it allows you this freedom, right? That I can be an American conservative and I can share some loyalty uh, and some duties, reciprocal duties with an American socialist or, um, you know, or even an American communist that, that, and that's the kind of uh, freedom that this, this baseline of national identity, right. Is, is, that you were sharing a territory and endeavoring to live under the same laws together. And yes, it's the core civic compact that comes first. Right. Um, and you are also in that an individual citizen. You're not, um, you're not a, when you, when, when I became a citizen, I didn't have a hyphen attached to it. The word American, it was, that's right. What I was, oh, well, that's what I was. I wasn't a Euro American or whatever. I was just an American. The idea is that, and you're right that it, rather than being a constrictive identity, that's actually a liberating identity. It, it both characterizes the limits and boundaries of a political society, and it, it roots us in a very particular identity, and then makes the other identities a lot more uh, voluntary and and, right. and and able to to be fluid with them. And this attempt to 
to nail you down to a particular identity is, is is, and this is why the logic of intersectionality never made any sense to me. Because yes, obviously, it's it's it's. I mean, it's not exactly a revelation either. <laughs> obviously, human beings are complicated and have many different kinds yeah. of identities, and some of them are cross. You know, some of them are in some kind of tension and conflict. Uh, but you, but the response to that is not to flatten that individual into one aspect of that identity, but to celebrate the differences and to understand that that's a complexity. And ultimately, the more identities you have, the more individualistic you are. I mean, everybody is an extraordinarily unique variety of identities. I mean, I think of my own. I mean, it's been, I've been, I mean every, every, since I fucking drew breath as a writer, I've been asked, how can you be Ray right. and Kathleen and, blah, 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 and Tori and, and, Tori and all this fucking yeah, shit? Yeah. And I, I'm just sort of exhausted. Or how can you be an immigrant and not have uh, open borders as your core philosophy? And, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and it was just like, no. <laughs> uh, and, and as an immigrant, my political views are dictated to me because I'm an immigrant by people. You can't take a position that maybe we should control immigration more <laughs> if you have just come in. If not, you're a fucking hypocrite. Go fucking self back to, to UK, which is what they, they're often telling me. Or if you're a gay person, as I am, and I don't buy the alphabet people redefinition of a million different sexual orientations and identities and gender identities, uh, that doesn't mean I'm not gay. Uh, it, I still am. Yeah, it's... it's it, <laughs> It's kind of weird too. Like, it's it's weird from the outside too. Like, I I worry that I've suddenly been redefined as cis when uh, I it never occurred to me, right? Like, it never occurred to me that I was cisgendered. Um, like, I'm just well, a married. If you define everybody from the perspective of 0.3 percent of the society, you're going to have some some odd uh, characterizations, obviously. Um, right. The question is, does that make really any sense? Um, or is it not actually distortive rather than uh, explanatory? It's it's distortive. It's also it's also a vain project, right? It's this kind of uh, this search for parity of esteem, mm -hmm. right? Like that's what I would call it, right? It's a politics of of parity of esteem, which I kind of I get that phrase from northern ireland right where it's like well we, we we can't have laws that promote the union jack over the tricolor or we can't you know we have to we can't have the you know after the good friday agreement we can't have the royal ulster constabulary because that privileges the unionist community over the nationalist community so we're just gonna have the police service in northern ireland right like um and first of all like I, I would hate if American politics were in a sense like <laughs> governed like uh, a potential war zone, right? Where like the presumption is we are at war with each other and have to be restrained with this, uh, with this exquisite attention to manners, right? And that the, the slightest breach of them uh, will cause the resumption of hostilities, potentially violent ones. Uh, and also, like, like I said, nobody will ever agree that they are equally esteemed uh, in a society that has any room for unequal achievements, right? right. Like by individuals or groups. Um, 
And they don't seem to realize that the search for esteem is, renders you, you, yourself utterly dependent upon the whims and ideas of other people. Right. Uh, the key to me is being a minority or being like a gay person is to be indifferent, utterly indifferent to how others put me in their esteem. Uh, it is like the old Eleanor Roosevelt notion that no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. Right, yeah. Instead of building up our internal psychological resources to be indifferent to these kind of slights, these microaggressions, we actually reverse it to make us super sensitive to every single one. And oh, that's yeah. a recipe for psychological absolute madness. It, it's, it's just a question of how as a minority do you psychologically cope with being a minority? And that is also different. It is possible, for example, if you're, if you're, if you're African-American, be only 13% of the country, right? So you're always outnumbered. And as a gay person, I'm you know, always outnumbered, but massively. Now, do I take that as the defining, do I find that uncomfortable at times? Yes, of course. You know, <laughs> everyone likes to be in a, in a society where everyone's like you and it's easy as opposed where, to everyone assuming that they're not like you. And that's where hard. You, where and are you broadcasting a, from right now? Provincetown, Massachusetts. <laughs> Why do you ask? <laughs> I'm just wondering like how much of a minority you actually feel like. Oh, well, here, <laughs> here or not. I'm just a minority, but, but you could be a minority well, anyway. I'm a minority. I'm an absolute minority conservative here in, in Provincetown. Let me tell you that. But, uh, uh, I mean, in society as a whole, uh, obviously, you, you, most places are overwhelmingly straight. And because most no, no, people are, um, I don't care. I don't care, for example, if gay people are 1% of the population, 3% or 5%. What does it matter? It does not affect my self-esteem. And, and that tradition in which you accept that in a multicultural society, you are going to feel slighted. You're going to feel different. You're going to feel marginalized. Because numerically, just numerically, you're gonna be right, and it's uncomfortable sometimes because that's the that's the that's reality. Well, uh, you know, I, but you know, it's interesting. I think you know one riddle for this, right? You know, so we've said, uh, you know, this this desperate attempt for parity of esteem is 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 fruitless, right? But it is kind of this like, okay, let's try something else because parity of economic outcome kind of didn't work. So maybe we have to do parity of esteem first, and then you'll somehow magically produce parity of uh, quality of life in America. You know, and I wonder too, you know, so I, I you know, there may be lots of answers for black Americans about why they had difficulty after the civil rights movement achieving as much as they wanted to, right? Like there, um, like, you know, this, cause I think that some of CRT is this scandal that Asians came over and started, you know, dominating certain fields or, you know, in certain sections of the country, like Iranian immigrants have come in and done extraordinarily well, or Nigerian, Niger Nigerian immigrants have done extraordinarily well. Well, one potential answer that at least appeals to me for this, the scandal of um, native black American achievement is, would be acknowledging that uh, unlike um, Iranians coming over or Cubans coming over, you know, the, the descendants of slaves, they really were robbed of um, 
the ethnic and cultural resources and, and politically often the ability to cohere as people, right? I mean, like literally the slave laws, got, you know, interfered with marriage often uh, and, and destroying family networks that kind of are the, the very things that immigrant groups use in very strategic ways to advance when they first come here, right? Like uh, they, they, um, they find ways to advance through sometimes open ethnic nepotism, right? Like that's, that's kind of like the story of the Irish in New York was just like, let's take over the police union. Um, and, you know, blacks were often deprived of that. Um, and, but in, in a sense, like that's a, that may be one answer to the riddle. Like we don't have to, you know, you don't have to resort, uh, you know, to, to, to other theories of innateness yet, or at least I don't think so. Um, well, the, the obvious other issue would be, would be family structure, which we know is incredibly important to social advancement and how and why that structure collapsed. Uh, you know, the old Moynihan argument would be, would be a reason why in fact, this hasn't worked as well as we wanted it to. Well, and it's worth revisiting too, right? Like I was just traveling through upstate New York, which is like my colleague, Kevin Williamson would, with the rest of Appalachia would, would categorize it as the great white ghetto. Mm. And, you know, all the, the same dysfunctions that Moynihan was identifying are all present there for, um, poor whites in this kind of land beyond the pines, which is a place that's so beautiful and so depressing, uh, when you go through it. Um, and yeah, that, that, that is part of it, right? Like, um, you know, I'm sorry, but just like, uh, you know, immigrant groups also have this advantage of like, they're almost certainly among the top percentage of people in their native country who then yeah, they're self -selected. immigrant they're self-elected for gumption for initiative for intelligence yes. to a great extent and therefore those things obviously make a huge difference whereas native whites native african-americans they're, they're not self-selected in that way and especially if they've been abandoned essentially by the mainstream society they're gonna there's gonna be a, a cultural dynamic to their decline as we've seen also with the drug abuse among poor whites in places which have also lost meaning and direction and economic vitality. Right. So there are explanations for this. There, there are many complicated explanations which right. require a certain amount of engagement in how do we, how do we uh, re rebuild social structure there instead of just overwhelming them with, right. with, with immigration, as it were, um, well, which because, only kind of rubs it in in a way. Right. Uh, well, it, it, yeah. Right. Because this is this is fundamentally then becomes questions about difficult ones to address about history and institutions, not just about bare ideology, right? Because I mean, uh, yeah, like it, it, it's just kind of, you know how Freud said the Irish were immune to psychoanalysis. <laughs> one reason I, one reason I probably approached the question of CRT more dispassionately is that, having some Irish blood in me, I'm also immune to the charge of being an oppressor, right? Like even, even Irish people who served in the British Navy, uh, like just don't feel themselves to be a boss class and don't, and, and um, 
you know, my child hard too. I mean, I'm cold, oppressive and, and, and privileged and everything. I it just, my own cultural psychological background has never, I've always been marginalized in almost every situation I've been in. I Why? don't, I, 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 I didn't inherit that kind of privilege or what I would understand to be privileged within my own upbringing at all. Yeah. I mean, like as a child, like my main, like, <laughs> Like the, the theories like that I'm kind of inducted into whiteness and that the Irish learn to become white. Like I spent my childhood trying not to get my ass kicked by the Italians, like in Bloomfield. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like my picture of America was like, there's Italians, Irish, and, and they go to the same church and, you know, the Irish are the crooked cops. The Italians are the lovable criminals. <laughs> and then, and then we we both of us keep the poles out in in another church, and um, and yeah, then... or, or for example, why in England in the in the twenty first century the resistance is to white immigration from Europe, from Poland, from all those places. It, it's it's uh, and also the indignity of of struggling as a poor white person then turned around and being called a, a privileged racist by 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 some junior at Yale is is always going to well it's and always that... going to rub you understandably well, raw and when and when bill crystal says like oh the immigrants are better than the natives in america and, and, and the natives aren't grateful enough i mean the the social contract that makes a land of immigrants possible is the one built by a land of opportunity right so right like like one of the reasons for the nationalist uprisings in central europe is emigration right? Like mm -hmm. Hungary and Poland are losing their best people to Germany and the UK and Ireland respectively. And uh, so they naturally rebel against the idea that they're going to take in poorer immigrants. It's like, well, we're already losing our most talented 10th or more uh, to America, the, you know, these, the, the global cities, which are, are taking off. And it's, it's true in America too, right? Like if, if people feel they are locked into intergenerational poverty or near poverty or into a crumbling middle class from which they can't really crawl out, um, they will resent this uh, immigration and they will resent um, statements that America is like this kind of land of opportunity if it isn't one for them in some way. Right. Like, yeah. And, um, and that's which is why immigration, mass, why mass immigration is such a top, hot topic, and why, in fact, it it can polarize in ways that other subjects right. could not, because it really directly attacks a lot of people's self esteem and and understanding of themselves. And it's not simply a function of their hideous racism, for example. It's a function right. of their sense that that, that 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 they don't count anymore. Um, right and. That sense is so deep that even when an absolute charlatan comes along and plays to them, uh, even if they're aware of the charlatan they, and, and what he's doing, they will nonetheless support that person as a fuck you to all those who don't, which is, which is understandable. Michael, we have been talking for two hours. I know. Um, and it's been an absolute uh, delight, uh, I, I, uh, really. And, I, and, but we, we probably should... Uh, we should wrap it up. <laughs> uh, wrap it up a little bit. I, I, I um. Well, what seems to have been so depressing, uh, in some ways, what gives you hope? What what picks you up in the morning? What what what, what gets you to go for? What makes you confident that we'll, we'll be okay? Um, 
the big thing for me is that I do have faith that um, lies and uh, lies can't reign forever, right? Like lies about human nature um, prove themselves out over time, right? Like when you try to govern and practice by them, um, the results are obvious misgovernance and failure, tyranny, injustice. Um, and so, you know, I just have faith that the the baleful trends that I, I don't like um, in society will, uh, the, the inner ugliness of the ideas will, will be outed into the, uh, yeah, the ugliness of misgovernance and, and will then be rejected. And um, I yeah, think it's just is, kind of... That's always the conservative case for optimism, that, that however bad the attempt at utopia is, <laughs> it, will, it will fall. I mean, yeah. it's, it's just simply a matter of time. Right. I mean, listen, like they can, uh, I, I mean, but to give the devil his due, right, of course, like injustice can reign long enough for any of us to die in a gas chamber, right? Like, so... Um, <laughs> Like, or, or starve in Ireland, yeah, in like, the nineteenth century, or all the other hideous uh, moments in human history where right. injustice has obliterated I, people. Yes, that's true. I, but in the long run, but in the long run, reality uh, reality has a real it really bites in the end. And I also, I just have faith in most people's knowledge of the world, and, and they they understand that these ideologies might save them, make them feel better for a minute, but they, they'll soon come back to that reality and. Insofar as they are attracted by something like woke ideology, they will realize, in fact, what they're deeply attracted to, what they're really drawn to, is kindness and understanding and mutual toleration, which is a, which I know, which I think is, the, the, in some ways, the noblest aspect of that quote-unquote movement, which right. is to, to, to see African Americans as, digni- as having dignity and has, had, having had that dignity horribly removed for so long, um, and how to restore that. And I think that's why I'm. I guess I'm also confident that Christianity is not going to die because, because again, for the same reason, I think it's true. And, right. Uh, my mother would say because our Lord will never abandon his church. Um, and that's, that's a very Irish thing for my mother yeah. to say. But I also think that, that in the end, if it's true, it's true. If, if it's true, it's true. I mean, and, and yet, you know, I still uh, am. So I'm given hope by that. And then I'm still given a kind of zeal by the fear of loss because you know there are things that get lost along the way if you don't take the time to preserve them like i wrote about the irish language which is dying and and half of all human languages will that are spoken now will die in the next hundred years uh if nothing is done to save them um so there, there is still uh the fact that i have faith that oppression uh reveals itself it still means there's still work to be done, right? To preserve what's good in humanity. There's still but the there's, challenge to the conservative is always uh, to to pursue that zeal, as you put it, with the acknowledgement that it might not succeed. Right. Uh, and in fact, it, it probably won't. Right. Uh, well, of course, yeah. I mean, the ultimate uh, humiliation, of course. Like I, I experienced also that that the that fruitlessness. Right. Trump himself was that fruitlessness for me. I'd spent like 15 years of a career arguing candidly, like I want a slightly more populist nationalistic right. I want 
a Republican president who can say the Iraq war was a mistake. Uh, I want someone who talks about the middle class. I want all these things. And then I got Donald Trump and, <laughs> and regretted it every moment. So be careful yes. what you wish for, ladies and gentlemen, because <laughs> you might get it. On that note, Michael, uh, what a delight to talk to you. Thanks for being so candid and for talking through some really difficult issues um, with, 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 with care and, and passion in many ways. So uh, I, I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. This was great. Absolutely, Michael. Um, talk to you soon, I hope. That was awesome. Yeah, I, I hope we can meet soon in real life. I, will, I know. It would be nice, wouldn't it? Where are you? You're based, though, in... in I'm in Westchester County, New York. Right, 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 right. Well, I'm I'm in Provincetown for most of the summer. Uh, and then I'm in D.C. You must get to D.C., though. I do get to D.C. pretty can you, frequently. Can you promise to look me up next time? I'll look you up. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to do the summer thing, too. I was hoping this year to establish it in uh, summers in Dublin uh, or near Dublin. But the restrictions on COVID didn't lift fast yeah. enough there. And um, so I'm only going to get three weeks in August, but um, I'll make the most of it. But yeah, I, get, I do get down to DC pretty frequently. And I think now AEI will start flying me. And, and there's literally the most luxurious thing in the world is um, living where I do in Westchester. It's two and a half hours door to door to DC through Westchester Airport. Like I just, it's 15 yeah, that's minutes. Great. It's like 15 minutes to get to the airport, five minutes to get through security. And then you just walk onto the plane. It's an hour and 10 minutes. And then it's just getting from Reagan to wherever. That's great. Which, which usually doesn't take long. It's, it's, it's like, especially amazing. if AI is paying it. Well, yeah. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. It's like everyone who has an expense account in DC should just live in Westchester, New York. <laughs> in, in my view. Yeah, I, but, I, but I'm a sub, I'm a suburban creature, not a. That that's probably increased my longing for land. Is like I'm a suburban person, so I'm I'm inherently disconnected. Uh, I'm an in, urban person that grew up as a, in rural England, so I kind of have this weird. I, I but I, that's why Provincetown is wonderful for me in the summer because it is actually extraordinarily tightly packed, and it's an old little village, so it, it's kind of urban when you get it. But then it's surrounded by Dunes in the wilderness, so you can just get out and into the most incredible landscapes. It's gorgeous there. I mean, I um, I remember as a kid vacationing, teenager vacationing in like Cape Cod, generally, a couple times. And I remember one time, I was like fifteen or something, and I needed to get shoes for whatever reason, and <laughs> going to Provincetown, I was not ready for what was there. <laughs> like, I just remember I bought the shoes, like some some hideous pair of sketchers that you would wear in the nineties, like big chunky heels. And I start walking around. And I'm feeling pretty good. And then someone's like, just tells me, Hey, there's a tag on your shoe still. I was like, Oh, I'm embarrassed. So I like just immediately look down. I pull the tag off of my shoe and I come up to the person who informed me of this. And he's in a, in a glittering sailor suit <laughs> head to toe. And he was just checking out my teenage ass, which was, significantly more attractive back then than it is now <laughs> middle age uh, i was just like okay i'm not <laughs> <laughs> you're not in kansas anymore exactly i was like okay wow this is quite no it is funny because it's 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 it, you see you see people come <laughs> into like, town they slowly have to acculturate and and it you know it's it's it was it's hilarious just, it was really funny though because it was like 
it sound it would sound almost like a slur to tell like he was in a glittery sailor no it's totally it's not it's hilarious i remember i took matt stone here for bear week once and we went to um the the tea dance at bear week and uh which was sort of absolutely packed with giant hairy backed dudes and a uh, Matt who's inveterably heterosexual. I said afterwards, as we were going, we we're leaving. I said, "What do you make of that?" He said, "Well, I it felt like it felt a bit like I was when I was in the Japanese subway. I could understand this culture existed, that it made sense, but I had absolutely no way of engaging it uh, whatsoever." I mean, yeah, it's I don't know, it's funny, but it's it's also been. I mean, I have to say, it's not even though they just passed a fucking hiring this another dei person for the whole town as if like uh. <laughs> but in general on the free speech free expression front it's it there's none of this it's the drag queens are just as fucking rude and politically well, incorrect as they ever were you know it's kind of funny like <laughs> i pitched to um maddie kearns or a national review she's sorting out her immigration issues now i think she's back in scotland um but she writes on the trans stuff, and I was like, "You should write a conservative case for drag, like that. Like trans is like taken over. Um, seems like so much more miserable than drag, which which has this element of libertinism and uh, unapologetic rudeness, and of course, like doesn't involve life altering surgery, uh, and also it's and designed." It, 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 certainly there were different kinds of drag queens but many are designed not to look like women but to look like men in dresses that look ugly <laughs> right <laughs> and, no, no. And that's the humor of it right yeah that's it's exactly it i i always i also thought this would be funny because i thought like sarabamari was like popping a pimple to go after drag queen story <laughs> hour I, I i like sora but i thought like drag is almost right wing now like, like yes in fact you know rupaul had to was put up you know it was yes. offensive by saying no it's important that it be men dressing as a women as opposed to uh trans people um and right. of course she was pilloried for that and reversed herself a little bit but she's right i mean part of the point of that i mean that's the other the other thing the sex binary is so vital to to gayness well, uh, that that the abolition of it is 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 the trans movement is utterly incompatible with the gay rights movement. That's the, that's the actual well, no, no, truth. I mean, well, and that's why, I mean, that's why some of the most important writers about it, like yourself and Douglas Murray, are like, uh, these Tory gay men, but like, uh, there yeah, is something... How many of the anti-woke people are gay? It's kind of rem remarkable. I, yeah, it's like, I kind of, yeah, right, Barry Weiss. I like, I don't write about it. Katie Herzog, uh, Glenn Greenwald, all these people are gay. Right. I kind of, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like not my issue area. Like I've never kind of written about the sexuality stuff. Like I've written about abortion quite a bit. Um, but just cause I'm not like this, I'm a Catholic. I don't have this kind of ultra Protestant moralizing right. sense of like, like I kind of understand the kind of, you know, 1989, like you can't close the bathhouses down. Like people are going to do what they want to do, but also like, I recognize too that there is this like in drag or, or do you remember in Savannah, Georgia, there was this figure, the lady Chablis. I uh, don't tell me about it. So her. anyway, she's kind of like, was this famous drag queen. I mean, I'm already giving in by saying she, but like that's, that was the social performance. 
but for decades in Savannah, Georgia, she was this figure culturally, like just known to this small city kind of constantly put on this performance. She was born uh, Benjamin Edward Knox. And uh, I think she was in the movie um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Mm-hmm. Um, this black man who, who played this woman socially. And like, it was fundamentally a kind of um, Good Friday style, Rabelaisian, almost medieval acknowledgement of the gender binary. Like there, yeah. there was this kind of, yeah, chaotic affirmation of order, like in yes. her as this yes. character. It's, and uh and anyway like um and it's not for me to write this it's for douglas like douglas murray wrote about these kind of issues so brilliantly in that madness of crowds book uh but it's it's not something that i can't recognize uh but it's like if if a conservative catholic irish person tried to write about it i mean it would be like starting a riot i think uh i i just i hate the logic of that i think anybody can write about anything and i know i know it's really interesting to to listen to that i i i like people utterly divorced from the cultures to come in and write about them my perhaps my favorite piece of writing about gay culture is midge dector's 1981 the boys, the boys on the beach. In I the was going to ask you. I was going to ask you about that because I read that a few years ago, and I kind of wanted to ask, like, what what do you think of it? Because like it, it was, it was um, fucking amazing. It was an amazing it, piece of writing. It's an amazing piece of writing, and it and, and it's totally honest. I don't believe she lied about a thing. Uh, no, and. I mean, there is a tone of horror, <laughs> which which wouldn't which which, but I but I didn't, but I also found a tone of curiosity and just recording of the stuff. Um, well, horror, but also like sympathy and sadness, right? Because it's like she describes the the Mother's Day. That's the, well, and then, but also like just the the relentless meat market logic, right? That can be so cruel, right? Like, so in a sense, like you went into this identity and movement for acceptance but then it's it it can be the most catty hellacious social scene it's Um, brutal it's brutal and and, and it's brutal in in terms of beauty what men do to women watch them do it to each other in this absolutely completely cold darwinian way it's it's absolutely brutal and um yeah so it it, um anyway culture in a way was a response to this Bear culture right. was like, fuck you, we're fat. We don't care. Fuck off. Let's then we want to order a pizza and sit by the pool, <laughs> sit by the pool and get drunk. And uh that's why I loved it so much. It was such a sort of rebuke right. to those to the, people. The, the tyranny of the twink, right? But then within within years, there became the cult of muscle bears. In other words, people who were in the bear world that then got jacked up on stories and looked hot and were all these kind of lean big hairy muscle dudes and so that it's it's inevitable it's funny like the the churn of cultures even subcultures is hilarious because like the the funniest thing is i think of analogs among traditionalist catholics like the latin mass catholics of like Mm -hmm. there's the tyranny of the asthetes which is met by like a rebellion of the moralists and then like the theologians the theologically inclined types come in to try to bring order uh, to the cat fights. Like it's the same, like there are these like same dynamics of like one set will get a little bit of power 
abuse it and then another set will inevitably rise up uh develop its own social vocabulary for challenging it, that power and bring about the churn that's like necessary for healthy institutions in life right like yeah the difference with us is i think that it, along with that there has also been just these these clear moments of political and civil and legal advance um and right. those also intersect with these general things and so in some ways i think what you're seeing now is a bit of a left reaction to the triumph of conservatism in gay politics in the in the early part of the 21st century where we kind of wrestled the movement from their hands made it had some key sort of liberal reforms and 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 now really we're done right they, like, they're terrified that we're done and therefore they have to kind of create new issues to keep it going yeah it's weird to, it's like i remember like uh, i guess you know obviously you're much more privy to this history but like I first got into political writing in the very late 90s, early 2000s, right? Like I went from reading all the religious stuff to picking up like, you know, uh, you know, there's this volume of 1990s political writing from left and right that Caldwell edited with someone else with, oh, with, yeah. Hitch, with Hitchens. Yeah. And it had all these beautiful pieces from the standard, but even from Chronicles and I just, it, it lit me up and it made me want to, move into the field, which is ridiculous because I should have tried to marry someone with a trust fund first. But um, anyway, I did that. And, um, you know, I, I subscribed to like a bunch of political magazines and my, you know, my liberal relatives were like, bought me subscriptions to Harper's, The Nation, The New Yorker. And I remember like reading in 2001 2002 like the nation was still anti-gay marriage right like it was still like <laughs> this is the bourgeois vacation of of course of queerness yes and uh like we have to resist this and then like i eventually got to know like justin romando who was a libertarian but held to the same thing of like i'm gay precisely because i don't want to get married <laughs> right um no i mean people will forget that my argument when i First started making this it was it was met with furious hostility from most of the gay establishment i mean it was from from both the left for the the doctrinal reasons that you mentioned but also the the, the right of the movement which was in hock with the clintons and didn't want to rock the boat in any way and i don't think people realize like uh, the quickness of the social change was absolutely bewildering like you know i noticed you know i said that my mother like kind of you know reassured me at a very young age like oh it's fine if you're gay and it was i think just because i liked like drama or something i don't know what what it was or like i was drawn to the arts um i'm i'm really uh not gay hopelessly <laughs> not gay uh i wish i had the fashion sense I, I, whatever well, no I, I don't have look at me for fuck's sake i'm the worst gay i i fail every fucking gay test i i i i i I, 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 I'm utterly alien to gay culture, mostly but, gay culture. But I still remember, like, I remember for me, like, when I knew it was kind of inevitable for, like, that gay rights was going to be, like, a big thing that would sweep everything before and that it was useless as a conservative to kind of resist it was that I remember my mother, my mother's reaction when Melissa Etheridge came out. <laughs> And my mother's reaction was, I can't believe it. 
I, and she, I remember I was overhearing her talk to one of my older cousins and she's like, I could have sworn, like, it's unthinkable to me that those songs were written about a woman. Like that had to be about a man. Like that's what I, she believed. Like she Mm. identified with these songs so much, these protagonists so much. And then I remember a couple years later, I kind of put to her that exact sentiment and she couldn't recognize it as her own, but she did recognize it as bigoted. And I was mm. like, okay, this is, I mean, it's just, this is irresistible. Like, it's amazing. Like she My, could not, not, she like knew, she learned at that point that like, this must be bigoted opinion, but she didn't recognize it as an opinion she had held, you know, 10 years earlier. Well, and first of all, it isn't bigoted. I don't think it's bigoted at all. <laughs> at it's all. just, you're just curious. It's what you're art just... is. Oh, no, art is about ambiguity. You, you can, you, you, she can keep those songs as part of her. The, the, the artist doesn't own the song. Um, right. And, uh, cause I grew up with the Petra Boys, which were, which were always, their lyrics were always you. They never, they, there was never any third right. pronoun. So it was all kept incredibly vague. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and we just had to read into it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's, uh, I have a great pet shop boys thing. Um, <laughs> so do? yeah, well, it's it just a funny story. So years ago I met, um, uh, this Irish woman who married, uh, who my father knows who married a New York cop and she grew up in Derry and, um, and she, her father was in, involved in smuggling and was very much linked up with the provos and um she she told me this like memory of being like a teenage girl and the british soldiers burst into her home pull her brothers out point a machine gun in her face in her own living room and she can hear them uh like twisting her brother's arms uh against their backs against the wall of the front house of the house's front and you can hear her brother screaming and then the soldier pointing a gun at her face notices that top of the pops is on <laughs> the tv and asks like is pet shop boys number one again <laughs> and um and like <laughs> <laughs> which is just like that is somehow that has to be in a movie scene someday. yeah isn't there isn't there a movie isn't there a movie now about girls in the dairy in the 70s well, there, there, there's no there, there's a show on right. one of them called dairy girls it's it's yeah it's based it's in the early 90s okay um, but, but it's, it, it captures that sort of it, combination of, of of medieval drama and pop culture at the same time yes absolutely and um it is pretty funny because like it is like there was these funny scenes but like she was also so she's living in suburban new york up in putnam county with this cop and but it tells you like how deep the the conflict fucked people up which is that um she was told like she got a phone call one night saying like you'll never believe who's in this bar in the bronx right (laughs) she's like a mother of like four children up in the suburbs. And she hears about, Hey, there's this guy you would know. And he was like some Irish guy from Derry who got a reputation as an informer. Um, 
an informer that caused her family some trouble. And she immediately like put down all her motherly duties, drove to the Bronx, went to the bar and was recognized like, Oh, Marie, what are you doing here? And she just turns to the barman and says, I didn't know you served such scum in a place like this. The guy is like immediately dragged out of the bar. And like the word was he left for Venezuela (laughs) the next day. (laughs) Cause he was afraid. Like he was going to call something, some kind of hell down on him. Um, Wow. Now that's an Irish grudge. I and mean, it, really, it's my, my I, it's definitely part of my family too. The, 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 my brother is like he has a list of grudges, and they will he will not let let up. Um, it's funny, like one of the like so for me, like there's many things I hate about Ireland and Irish society, and like and not just like the 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 stupid, shriekly, pathetic modern Ireland, which is just like let's be West Britain, like it's literally like as low as like, let's just be a special section of the guardian comment section. Ireland. (laughs) I hate that. But one thing I, I kind of hate about Ireland is like the level of class conflict in Ireland is so under remarked upon, but it's, it defines everything. Like, like in England, the classes somehow find ways to avoid each other somehow. Like, you know, your chab isn't going to run into a tough and and they're not going to have a conflict. But in Ireland, class is like the weapon you carry into the street. And like every person you meet, there's like this immediate ranking of who's below and who's above. But because they're Catholics, it's also reversed. So it's like the poor person also feels superior because they know somewhere in the back of their mind that God loves the poor and prefers them to the rich. And the rich person must have done something wicked to be rich. And they rich person hates the poor person as like someone whose wickedness brought them into poverty even if they're separated by like 10 10 grand in real life right, like right, right. and it's like it's really weird because the irish don't talk about it but it's part of like the air they breathe in and every conversation um and it's horrible <laughs> like and, and, and like um it's like an invisible caste system and um, and no one's captured it yet um, in literature. I don't think um, someone should. Well, they've definitely captured it in the English version. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, but it's also kind of amazing how much class was that and how liberating it was to come here where it's not quite as omnipresent. Um, uh, but Michael, I better, I have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is fantastic though. I'm so grateful and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.